0: This podcast and its contents are not endorsed or sponsored by CBS Studios Incorporated or The Good Fight. Carl Reddick, the man who adds Reddick to Reddick, Bozeman and Colstad, is dead. His passing has left a power vacuum, with a funeral where paying respects to the dead is the last thing on anyone's mind. Diane Lockhart not only considers jumping ship, but also brings in Reddick's daughter Liz as an insurance policy. Meanwhile, Luca and Maya fend off duplicitous FBI agent Madeline Starkey, who has some bogus audio implicating Maya's father. And then there's Barbara Colstad, who surprisingly jumps ship to a larger firm. Let the good fight begin. The offer came from someone who betrayed me. Someone who betrayed you once
1: will betray you again. That's a given. Gather your legal briefs and get ready for a brawl. This is the Good Fight SBS Fan Podcast our weekly discussion about the TV drama, The Good Fight. It's our deeper dive into the show with an exploration of the real-world stories that influence the show. My name is Dan Barris. I'm one of the editors here at SBS on a TV site here called The Guide. Joining me every week is SBS Life Deputy Editor, Sarah Malik. Hi, Dan. How are you going? Hey, Sarah. It is exciting. We're finally here <laughs> at the beginning of The Good Fight. Yes. Now, I'll be honest, I always get a little bit nervous, and mm-hmm. not just because we're doing this podcast. If there's a show that I love, like The Good Fight, I find myself so nervous at the beginning of a new season, because it's like going back to school for the first day. Like Maybe your friends aren't really there anymore. You don't really quite know how everyone's changed. And it hasn't been that long since we last spent our time with the friends we have at Uh, Reddick, Bozeman and Colstad. And yet, I don't know, I just felt just a tingle of trepidation.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's that feeling of really eagerly anticipating something and being really excited about it, but at the same time, hoping it lives up to your expectations.
1: Absolutely. And happily, this episode, I think, knocked it out of the park. I was completely into it.
0: Yeah, like it just got right into it. I felt like the show kind of set up the framework for what we're going to see this season. So you know how last season, every episode would just die into something, like a controversy or a drama. Yeah. This kind of set up the scene for where we're at, what we're going to see, where the characters are at, and I think just provided, yeah, like a framework for what we're going to see.
1: Yeah, it was a good foundational episode. Mm. Now, one of the things I really liked about the show's predecessor, The Good Wife, is that there'd often be a lot of politicking going on within legal firms. Yeah. So you would see uh, like people sort of gathering in meetings, and it'd be secret meetings, and it'd be meetings within meetings. And it's always about like trying to push out one of the other partners in the firm or just trying to jockey for greater positioning. And while that took place all the time in the show, it was always within the confines of the law office. Mm. What I liked about this season return is that we weren't even in the offices of Reddick. Bozeman and Colstad I did it so well the first time (laughs) through We weren't even in their offices at all for the entire episode. This was completely just the jockeying, the exact same politicking taking place, but within the confines of the funeral um, hall and then like in the cars afterwards. Yeah. So previously where you'd see people going into different meeting rooms, instead it was really just the camera moving from car to car to car and you just saw like the different conversations taking place and how those various conversations would impact on what's happening in the other cars at the same time. So clever.
0: Yeah. And like the hustle is everywhere, not just in the office. And I think that really came through how the personal and the workplace dramas kind of intersect. And I thought that that was done really well and how a lot of these big changes and moves and emotional shifts that make people jump ship or change direction happen in these private conversations. And I thought that was really cleverly
1: done. I find it really interesting in these US legal dramas where they'll have named partners in a law firm, but there always seems to be one partner who's never actually part of the show. (laughs) And so I do like in this episode, you do have the passing of Carl Reddick. And with him passing, it really sort of opens up the show to be able to probably move Diane Lockhart into being the name partner in the firm. I'm sure that's where this is heading. But it was just kind of nice to sort of see that power absence from the show sort of more or less be pushed aside now, and they can really start to play around with uh, establishing a foundational base, I guess, for what we're as a viewer coming to with watching this film. Isn't it stressful though? Like when you when you're <laughs> watching
0: it, I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not a lawyer. Like I'm so glad I didn't go down that path because it's just such high pressure. Like fortunes change so quickly, you have to be on the ball, and I think that they showed that with. Diane kind of getting a bit trippy. <laughs> she gets a bit trippy in this episode. Well, she did I, that release. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you wonder, like, it's so challenging being in that kind of environment. How are they dealing with it? They are human. And I remember like with lawyer friends of mine as well, like a lot of the campaigns around the profession were around mental health and, you know, this high degree of substance abuse in the profession. And I mean, that's kind of a digression but you know it is like it is such a high pressure atmosphere and i'm glad they showed that there is a toll to that and um they show diane kind of going off the deep end a little bit but um yeah that was interesting
1: yeah and i do like that in this episode they've really juxtaposed nicely the politicking taking place at the higher end of the firm where you've got that taking place with two other strands so you've got junior investigator marissa gold of whom is very much at the bottom end of the firm she yes. is relegated as just being diane's personal assistant as we saw in the first season, she's got aspirations of becoming a detective. We find out in between seasons that she has now got a license. And she's really just trying to push her way up to becoming a bigger player within the firm.
0: She makes her move. I love it. I love that scene. And and she just fights her way through and states her case. And Adrienne is surprised and actually impressed by her her guts, you know. And doesn't that episode or that that scene make you just want to ask for a pay raise, you know? Like <laughs> I just love it. Like these young women who are going up the ranks, finding their voice, and that was kind of evident with Maya in last season as well when she, you know, develops the confidence to become more bold and more assertive. Mm. And that that's not a dirty word and that's something that you should do as a young woman in, in the workforce. And so, I know, I think that was really, like, I love that. I thought that was great. Well,
1: it's interesting you mentioned Maya there because there's obviously the parallel with the... Uh Uh, Marissa's scene because essentially Myra had done the exact same thing with Mm Bozeman really the episode prior because it was in a season finale Mm -hmm. where she was trying to shadow uh, Bozeman because she needed to exert her presence within the firm and so it was just kind of Bozeman reacting the exact same way and I think that's really just telling that from now on when we see a character who wants to really get into Bozeman's favour if they want to carry his favour that's the way to do it, It's really be assertive and push yourself into his narrative.
0: Yeah, and I love how they're showing that the jockeying of all these people as they recalibrate the firm to basically um, deal with all the changes and keep their clients and keep running and the fact that they have to continually do that and recalibrate themselves to be effective, but also showing that there's an ethical way of doing that as well. So Diane meets her former Former colleague, what's her name? The um, older lady.
1: I missed um, her name.
0: Yeah. So, you know, she's someone who is one of those fair weather friends, I guess. And basically, you know, um, asks Diane if she wants to come to her firm and then takes Barbara instead. Right. And so I think that that was interesting too. Like, Diane, even though she's jockeying and she's hustling, she's always kind of on the right side of things and still developing other people and making sure that she acts in a fair way. And I think that that's something that is also really good to see.
1: Yeah. Now, there's a third story of strand taking place here, which is also working in contrast against what's happening with Diane. And while we're seeing Diane at the upper echelon of the policy king, um, at the other end, you've got Meyer of whom it's not quite because of something specifically she's done legally, Mm. but like her storyline is very much about the difficulty that a lawyer can get into when they misspeak or they essentially start pursuing a line of defense that isn't really quite right and won't serve them well in the long run. Mm -hmm. And so while she's suddenly essentially dealing with the sins of her father, it's very much her on trial and her establishing her skills and um, her representative being Luca Establishing her skills in order to say, yes, I am a lawyer of whom can deal at the level that's needed to start progressing up the chain. Yeah. So we're just trying to see at these two ends as to... What's happened. And obviously, it's personal for Maya, but this is very much just showing that, you know, she does have the legal skills to make it in this show.
0: Oh, man. Can you just imagine being Maya? Like, (laughs) how stressful. You know, you got like a crazy family, you're uh, public enemy number one, you're trying to climb up the ranks of this law firm that is, you know, very high pressure. Um, And I think all the stuff around the audio evidence was really interesting too, because it's not only just a commentary on her position, but also like, the vagueness of memory and how things can be manipulated. Yeah. and now,
1: It may have been a few days since people have seen the episode. Oh, right. yep. So reminding people about the audio evidence.
0: So, so yeah. the audio evidence is basically just some manipulated audio that the FBI give Luca and Maya in an effort to basically convince Maya to give evidence against her father. Um, Yeah, And
1: it's audio between the father and a mystery woman.
0: Yeah. And um, I think this has been a really interesting theme in the show also last season, the idea of fake news or fake information. Um, Mm. So the fake audio basically, you know, sends Maya into a real funk. You know, she thinks, oh, my dad has been unfaithful. He's lied to me. And almost she's kind of going back down through her memories and almost creating fake memories because she's trying to make sense of the tape. And so um, they investigate and they find out that this is something that is completely open to manipulation via technology. And I think that that's something that as a journalist as well, I find really interesting the idea of what is true, what is not, how things can be manipulated and the cybersphere and how that kind of leads to so much confusion when it comes to, to, to what's real and what's not
1: yeah now the idea of false memory is kind of interesting because Mm. through the storyline you see Maya she's trying to remember this woman that was part of her life as a teenager she remembers it was her tennis coach my parents didn't want her to coach me anymore they thought
0: they thought you were getting too close
1: Yeah. And I wonder what that's about because I never really sort of delved too far into that. Yeah. Because one of the things you're seeing through her memories is her seeing their tennis coach naked around the house a couple of times. Yes. Now, there's a few things that could be happening here. One, uh, this is obviously going to be Myra's, a young teenager of whom is starting to figure herself out sexually. Mm -hmm. So maybe these are false memories she's sort of created of a tennis coach that maybe she was just a bit fond of. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there's maybe that sort of playing a role here. You don't know. Maybe they're authentic memories. Yeah. But I mean, also... be something sort of to mask the psychological damage of the affair of which she was witnessed between the tennis coach and her father where once she started pushing her memories, her father suddenly appeared within that scene.
0: Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. Like, you don't know exactly what's happening and mm. I think that's deliberate as well because oh, she so. doesn't know what's happening. And I like how they kind of play with that ambiguity. I think that's a good thing. Um, it's the same thing with Bozeman and Liz. Like, I didn't... E- <laughs> that wasn't spelt out. I, You know, you wouldn't have known that Reddick Sr. was Bozeman's father-in-law, but it adds a totally different dimension to their um, not feud, but they're, they're, they're kind of, they're dynamic. they're dynamic. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. Speaking of the romances on the show. Yeah. Colin and Luca, uh, what's happening there? I want, I want more of that. That's all I'm saying. I just want to add that in.
1: Yeah. See, it's interesting because you're the only person I've ever come across who's invested in that relationship. I
0: love it. <laughs> oh, come on. You don't you don't feel you don't feel Colin. You're not you're not feeling it. Not really.
1: Why? He's the exact same bland presence he was in that first <laughs> hangover movie.
0: You don't think they've got this interesting tension? No. I,
1: I think any time that Luca is in a scene. Like she brings an interesting tension to whoever she's talking to or okay. dealing with. But yeah, I'm not feeling it there. But also, I the th-
0: think it's all right. That's all I'm saying.
1: The thing with Luca is that there's only been, as far as I recall, two romantic storylines that yeah. she's been involved with in the history of the character. So mm. there's one episode in A Good Wife where she has a potential romantic prospect. Yeah. And then you've got the Colin character. In neither episode do I feel any heat going on whatsoever between the two of them. Really? Yeah. Does
0: anyone have any personal life in this show, like, or do they just basically work like twenty four seven?
1: That is working. <laughs> but speaking of relationships, I find it interesting that Maya has attended this funeral. Where, if you look around a funeral, it's largely an industry event. Yeah. Okay. It's well wishes. It's, yeah. You know, it's yeah. an opportunity to network more than it is a proper funeral. Yeah. But you would think that in a position like that, that Maya's girlfriend. Okay, would be at the funeral.
0: Yeah, what's up with the girlfriend? Like, I feel like she's a real non presence in Mm. Maya's life. And, you know, she's going through all these stresses, and you'd assume that she'd be more heavily involved I, I don't know if that's reflective of their relationship or it's just the way the show's panned out but it doesn't feel like she's really heavily involved
1: i feel that character's a bit of a victim of the show finding itself and where the strengths are in the show mm. and that's probably just not quite really where they want to start focusing and by the time that they got to that it's probably too late in the sort of arc to keep playing but yeah. my understanding is we see that character come in later on in the season
0: Okay, yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. it could just be they want to focus on building the workplace yeah. relationships and case courtroom drama, so.
1: My guess is the relationships may be ended at this point and we're going to find that out in the coming episodes.
0: Yeah, cuz it did sense that she was a bit um overwhelmed by my situation and yeah. all the internet attention as well.
1: And fair enough.
0: Yeah, and fair enough. Yeah, fair enough.
1: One of the things I think we both like about the show is they don't really spell things out too much. Mm. And one of the things they don't really spell out too much is they mention Barack Obama's presidential library. Yeah. And at the very beginning of the episode, you've got the guy who's responsible for it, who is talking about Barack and Michelle. And I heard that, and I thought, that's a bit of an on-the-nose reference. <laughs> but as the show sort of revealed itself, you find out it's actually a plot point taking place within the show.
0: Yeah, it wasn't just shameless name-dropping. No. Um, uh,
1: and we do find out that the presidential library they're building for Barack Obama... It's something of which the law firm is looking after the legal surrounding that. And I've been using the fact that they have that presidential library as a bit of a calling card to sort of big time themselves a little bit to potential clients coming through. So it's been financially viable. But when I was watching it, I realized I don't really entirely know what a presidential library is.
0: Neither do I. Like, <laughs> being the Aussies that we are, it just sounds really fancy. And I love libraries, by the way. I'm such a yeah. library nerd. So when you said that you were going to, like, find out all about it, I was like, I want to hear what Dan has to say.
1: No, that's it. So the only like thing I really know about presidential libraries is from the show Veep recently, where Selena building her – Selena Myers being the vice president and then became president in that show – she was building her presidential library because she's reached the end of her presidency, and that's what you do after you finish being president. You make a library? Well, this is what I found out. Hey. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't really know exactly what the deal was. And in Australia, we don't really have anything like that.
0: No. Okay.
1: Like, God. We, we have Why more... don't we?
0: Well, in What's Australia, we've got more us? of a
1: continuance of government where the leader of our country isn't really the figurehead that yeah. a US president is. It's so boring. No, well, I don't know. There's, I think there's definitely a positive to it. <laughs> However, we don't really have that. And so neither of us knew what a presidential library was. And I presume that a lot of people listening would be kind of a little bit sort of unaware as well. Mm. So I did myself some research. Yeah. So the presidential libraries haven't always been a thing. Okay. Okay. But there are currently 15 official presidential libraries that operate through the US. Mm. And it's run by the National Archives and Records Administration. And essentially what happens within these libraries is all the notes and papers that are assembled during the entire period of the presidency all end up being collected in this library. So if you want to really get a snapshot of the administration that existed through the time of that president,
0: Mm.
1: you can research all that stuff at the library. Oh, wow. (laughs) Now, the 15 libraries include every president from Herbert Hoover, who's the 31st president, and he uh, wound down his presidency in 1933. Uh, to George W. Bush, who was the 43rd president, finished in 2009, and that's going to be the last presidential library which is administrated by the National Archives and Record Administration. Now, obviously, there's another president who's just finished recently, Mm -hmm. and so Barack Obama is now in a process of taking care of his library. He's doing something quite different, though. So where the other libraries are really bringing together all the paper files that have been um, gathered, what they're doing is digitizing all of Barack Obama's material Okay, because he's a digitally savvy guy. Yeah. Um, And so his library is largely going to be completely online. You can go to a building that they will build to access the materials. So it's not like there's going to be a website somewhere you go to. There may be an online component. I don't really quite know. I didn't go that deep into it. But largely, it's a digital environment, so you're not having to go in there and request books and then probably have to wait, you know, a few hours, if not days or weeks for those documents to be found for you to be delivered. But rather, this is going to be a way for all that material to live on in perpetuity with greater access and all the benefits that digital archiving deliver.
0: And Dan is not paid by the Obama presidential
1: <laughs> library. No, no, no but, but that, that like, it was going to super... happen eventually. Yeah. And like, it's just the time's now.
0: No, that sounds amazing. And, you know, Obama's such a big reader. So it would be really interesting to see what books they choose to be part of the collection and, and to be able to hop online and access it would be amazing as well.
1: Yeah. Now, the other thing I found when I was looking into it is that a number of US presidents are actually buried on the side of the libraries that they build. OK, because when you become president, obviously, that's probably the most important thing you're ever really going to achieve. Mm. So as a place of burial, it kind of makes sense. Are I you serious?
0: A, the presidents are buried with the libraries? A
1: large number of them. So there's a few that aren't. That's so crazy. you've got John F. Kennedy, who's buried at Arlington Cemetery. Right. So I actually went to visit his grave a few months ago and it was less. That's um, so interesting. it was less grand than I expected.
0: Who said TV wasn't educational? That's all I'm saying.
1: Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson as well isn't buried at the site of his library. Uh, Jimmy Carter and George W. Bush, even though they're both still alive, uh, they're not expected to be buried at their libraries. Carter plans to be buried near his home in Georgia. Uh, Meanwhile, George W. Bush has a burial plot already in the Texas State Cemetery.
0: Wow. That's intense. Yeah. I think I'd like to be buried in a library.
1: Yeah. But your library just gathering all of your work. (laughs) Just, All the articles that you're commissioning for SBS Life.
0: Like my collection of, you know, great work. Um, yeah, this no, podcast. It's a bit creepy. There'll be a room
1: for this podcast. People can go I in. Know, and- well,
0: I mean, who knows what will be in the future? Will it exist in physical space? Will it be in the ether? Like a... Yeah, like you said, digital.
1: Well, I'm anticipating we walk into the Sarah Malik library. Okay, yeah. Okay, you walk into the podcast room. Yeah, there'll right. be the Good Fight Club being featured. Yeah, as it'll well be as... like a hologram
0: of Dan and me at this point you that's know, it. in our and lives. there's
1: another podcast that I'll rope <laughs> you in for the next couple of years. Yes. So, there'll be that room. And
0: you could just press and listen in. Well, yeah. you probably
1: press the button and holograms come up yeah. with the two of us talking and Jeremy, our audio engineer, just hey, like Jeremy. staring on, <laughs> looking <laughs> disinterested. Who knows? Yeah. Brave New World. It really is. Yeah. Now, the other interesting thing that's taking place in this episode, and you mentioned this earlier, was the audio manipulation.
0: Yeah, that was, I mean, super interesting. I just found the whole concept of it really disturbing and really on point with a lot of the conversations that we're having around news and and, and what's real and what's not and fake news and how easily manipulated information can be.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, we kind of expect that if you hear a conversation between two people, that it's an authentic conversation between two people. But technology is really playing a role now where... That's not really necessarily something that we can believe. Mm. The only thing that really came to mind when I was thinking about this in terms of real world application was I remember back in the very early 90s, there were some tapes that Jennifer Flowers had presented to the world as part of a press conference, of her talking to Bill Clinton and it was supposedly revealing an affair that they had. Mm. Now, that was kind of in my mind and, you know, there's sort of the idea that it had been doctored. But I started thinking about, well, what's actually happening in terms of the state of technology to allow a more sophisticated version of that happening today? Yeah. And then I remembered a couple (laughs) of years ago, it was about two years ago, there was a product that Adobe, which is the software company that makes Photoshop, Mm. uh, that released a product called Voco, And it's an audio editing suite that allowed users to make people say whatever they want just by typing, which is the sort of technology we're looking at here in this show. It's so
0: terrifying. I mean, this is not even Sarah Malik right now, it's just some random. The, no, but it is terrifying. Yeah. The Sarah's idea that never contributed. No, to this I've never at all. contributed to. It. I don't know yeah. what's going on. No, the fact that you know your identity could be stolen, or that your words could be manipulated or taken out of context. And I think it's particularly disturbing in the current climate because we do live in a culture of snippets and decontextualized information, and you know people not really clicking into an article but responding to the headline or responding to a two-minute grab. Or you know, that's the nature of news as well. So I think that that makes it even more disturbing because people are basing their reactions on things which are very brief, very little tiny snippets of things. And that in itself is, even if it's accurate for that time, because it's so decontextualized, it doesn't give us a proper understanding of what's happening. So I think it's going further along that line of this very short attention span, this hyper news cycle that we're living in right now.
1: Now, what was interesting about this Adobe software is that it took about 20 minutes of listening to a voice to make the user say whatever they want. Okay, so, like, that's 20 minutes of processing. As we saw in this episode, it was more or less instantaneous. Mm. Okay. Um, We don't really know how long they spent processing each voice, but presumably it wasn't really, you know, too excessive. But the thing is that just a year later, there was some new software that was launched by another company and that technology brought it down from 20 minutes to just one minute worth of processing. Mm. Now, when you listen to the audio, when they sort of have a few fake voices talking, it sounds very electronic and Mm. it's just after a minute of processing. But I'd imagine that with a longer processing time, it probably sounds a lot more authentic. But even listening to the processed audio, uh, it still sounded like the people. Now, I actually found some audio that we can play so I can hear what it sounds like a little bit.
0: Hey, have you heard about this new technology? Are you speaking about this new algorithm to copy voices? Yes, it is developed by a startup called Lirebird. This is huge. They can make us say anything now, really anything. The good news is that they will offer the technology to anyone. This is huge. How does their technology work? Hey guys, I think that they use deep learning and artificial neural networks. Hillary is
1: right, and I can tell you that their team is
0: great. I wish them good luck. I'm sure they will do a good job.
1: Yeah. So as you can hear, like it sounds reasonably spot on for them, but it's too electronic. It doesn't sound authentic.
0: It's just so scary to me that you can basically just analyze someone's speech patterns or their behavior and model a kind of alternate version of them. Like what are the implications of this in terms of copyright? I mean, could you continue someone's if they're all quite famous, their persona or their online or their film presence after they
1: die. like
0: well, look, I mean, this, this, all the this stuff around technology and the law has been really interesting in this show and I think this is part of that those discussions on how nebulous those areas are.
1: Well, you already can do that. I mean, there's already a lot of talk about... In fact, just earlier this year, there was at the Super Bowl, Mm. there was concern that Prince was going to be appearing on stage dancing alongside Justin Timberlake because they were going to have a hologram of him until the family stepped in and said, we're really not interested in seeing that happen. Oh my
0: God, are you serious?
1: Yeah, but like this sort of stuff, like in terms of the ability for people to be able to create and recreate dead celebrities, Mm. that certainly exists now. But like while there's certainly a fear around this stuff, I can see some very positive uses for mm. being able to manipulate audio to the point where a written word can just become dialogue. So I listen to a lot of audio books. Yes. And like I can easily see there instead of having someone spending, you know, 20, 30 hours in a room recording an audio book, I could very easily see them creating it as an audio experience. I could easily see the author creating an audio experience um, out of their book without having to read it out manually. Yeah. I could also see there's a lot of benefits at the moment, the way that computer technologies are going, where it's not so much about having a computer in your home, but a lot of the voice assistants around. So like Google Home, uh, there's the Amazon Alexa, a lot of those sort of devices. Very soon, we're not going to be looking at screens so much as, you know, just someone reading it out. So it makes sense to me that a publication may decide to have a very specific voice reading out the content from their site, whether that's just train timetable information or if it's something a bit more um, in depth, like articles about presidential libraries. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. Uh, no, I think that's great in a way that it does make technology more intuitive, and that can really open things up for people who maybe English is not their first language, yeah. or people with disabilities, or you know, you don't people you don't have to be super literate to engage with technology, and I think that's. A a really good thing to be able to make that more accessible to people
1: also I mean think about people who have trouble speaking because mm. they've got say vocal box issues for whatever reason mm. I mean this is a way to sort of bring back their authentic voice to themselves yeah my understanding as well is there's a service called vocal ID where you Sarah Malik you could donate your voice to someone who's never had the ability to speak.
0: That is so cool.
1: Yeah, like it's phenomenal. So if you think about, say, Stephen Hawking probably being the most famous uh, text-to-speech person, uh, essentially he could have Sarah Malik's voice. I don't know if he would want my voice though, would he? Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask Stephen Hawking. <laughs> I don't want to represent him, obviously.
0: But you know what? If you were going to get a voice of someone to use for yourself, you'd want that voice to be pretty damn good, right? Like you'd want it to have a nice timbre
1: to yeah. sound good. Yeah. I mean, I would obviously have the Barry White voice. <laughs>
0: Like I'm just thinking, like, what are the best voices? Like, whose voice would you want?
1: Barack Obama's got a pretty good I know, voice. know he's
0: got that real timber, right?
1: Does that bring an interesting racial politics issue as well if you got people of different races or ethnicities of whom are then providing voices for people of other How ethnicities? How confusing
0: and, would that be, right? You're like, I think I'm speaking to a white guy, but I'm getting like a black voice. Yeah, yeah. like
1: yeah, it's black voice and <laughs> white voice performance fascinating.
0: Um, I remember something Jack Ma said recently, and he talked about how because everything is becoming so automated and machines can do more of the labor-intensive work that doesn't require creativity or originality, we're really going to see a new economy where those things are are valued more or that's how you can make your mark when you are doing things that a computer can't, you know? And so I think that that's going to be the challenge. We have to beat the computers, guys. We have to beat the computers.
1: (laughs) No, celebrate Um, your computer. It's your friend, I promise.
0: Don't don't forget the Matrix Dan, that's all I'm saying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this has brought us to the end of the first episode of season two of The Good Fight Mm -hmm. and thus the first episode of The Good Fight Club. Hooray. Hooray. Are you really tired of it already?
0: No, I'm super excited. I can't wait to like dissect every episode. It's going to be fantastic.
1: Yeah, no, it's going to be a lot of fun, particularly when we start dealing with some proper court cases.
0: Yeah, I think that would be, it would be really interesting to see what comes up this season in terms of the kind of kinds of cases. And I want more. I want more love stuff. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I want more Colin and Luca. Uh,
1: It's Diane and her husband. That's the storyline that I really like.
0: Yeah, me too. I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. One of the things I'm looking forward to this season is there was something they used to do in The Good Wife that you've only seen a little bit of in The Good Fight that I'm really hoping they continue on with. And it's exploring the idea of US courtrooms in various forms. Mm. So regularly that go to like military courts and then there's sort of secret courts that take place. As we saw through the first season, there was the grand jury investigation, Mm. which is another type of courtroom configuration again. Mm. So I'm really hoping they start exploring that again a little bit more. Maybe they've run out of courts they can explore, but I'd just be curious to see if there's anything else out there. It's just one of these little nuggets of the show that I really just dug. Yeah. And another insight into the American justice system and how it works. So yeah, very excited about season two. I'm even more excited after seeing this episode. I I
0: know. I can't wait. It's going to be great.
1: Now the Good Fire airs here in Australia every Wednesday night on SBS at 9:40 PM. If you missed the episode, or maybe you're just not a broadcast person, you can stream episodes as soon as they air on SBS On Demand. Now, Sarah, if people want to follow you on Twitter, uh, you know, feedback on the show, or just explore some thoughts, maybe they want to lend their voice ID to you.
0: <laughs> maybe they want my voice. Um, I'm at Sarah B. Mulley. That's my Twitter handle.
1: Yep, and you can find me on Twitter as well at the Dan Barrett. If you just want to talk broadly to SBS, there's SBS TV, and that's our TV Twitter handle. If you're talking about the Good Fight, or particularly this podcast, or if you've been watching it on TV, our uh, hashtag GoodFightSBS. SBS. Hit us up. Indeed. Sarah, thank you very much for spending some time. Big thanks to Jeremy, our audio engineer. We'll be back next week talking about more Good Fight. Bring it on.